From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we are looking at the rise and fall of IBM's personal computer business. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. You said your name as if you weren't sure which one you were. <laughs> Here's the thing. It, you learn when you have a lot of ends in your name that they all just kind of blend together. And I think I've gotten lazy with my own name mm. where they'll be like, what's your name? I'm like, Quinn. And they're like, Quinn? Quar? I'm like, so now I'm like, hello, my name is Quinn Nelson. Well, connected, we, uh, we decided it was Quentin. I know you did. I heard that. Uh, not my given name for the record, but you can call me whatever you'd like, Stephen. Daddy Q. Okay. Anything. Anything. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah okay let's get let's get back to ibm how does that sound right right okay okay we've spoken about the ibm pc its beginnings but now we're going to talk about the machines ibm released after the original model 5150 so there's like a whole line of computers we're going to talk about today oh okay there is an elephant in the room we have to kind of get out of the way and that is the legion of PC compatibles that kind of just sprung up on the market. We, we mentioned that a little bit earlier, and we're going to have a whole episode on clones later. But most of these IBM machines were sharing shelf space with machines that, in essence, were the same. They were based on the same platform, and um, they were often less expensive. And so many of the choices that IBM had to make they were influenced by those other systems that mm -hmm. existed on the market. And so, um, yeah, the timelines overlap a little bit. It's going to be kind of weird referencing the clones in this episode. And then in the clones episode, we'll reference certain IBM models, but it's all going to make sense. Stay tuned for that. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's time to dive into the IBM PC line. Yeah. So it's a family of machines. Like we said, we're not going to deep dive into all of them. All of them are interesting. Well, most of them are interesting in their own ways. Yeah, not all of them. But this can't take four hours. Uh, so let's start with the PCXT, known as the Model 5160. So you can tell from the the number, not not a huge not a huge change. Uh, it was released in March of 1983, and big news headlining hmm. feature hmm. ship standard with a hard drive. Ooh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Because up until then, you had to save everything on floppies before you shut mm -hmm. down and stuff, right? Or buy Including like an expensive hard card, which was a card with a hard drive on it. It's <laughs> wild to think about. You don't want to do that. Okay, well, what does XT stand for? Well, it's the 80s, so <laughs> it's unclear. It just oh, sounded cool. Okay. Some yeah, publications right. said it was like extended technology or even worse, <laughs> extended with the x and t capitalized like ne next next style surely that can't be real right extended with the capital x and a t feels too cool for ibm <laughs> does it oh okay the xt as you mentioned that big hard drive made a world of difference it allowed to you know users to save their programs and files locally to the machine not needing to rely on floppies but there were other pretty big additions as well this new machine supported CGA color graphics and could initially support up to 256K of memory. It was later kind of expanded down the line, uh, wherein they could run up to 640K of RAM. So quite a bit of memory increases there because prior models are, you know, 64K up to, up to 256, right? Now that's the standard. So uh, big deal on that front. 
this kind of resulted in a bit of a necessary change to the board layout, didn't it? Yeah. So there are a couple of things. They got to make room for the hard drive. So like you're adding, and this is not like little dainty laptop drives we have now. It's not M.2 SATA drives. These are ginormous. (laughs) Big, chunky, heavy metal hard drives. And a common complaint about the original PC was the number of expansion slots. So it originally shipped with five, Mm -hmm. but... IBM used a bunch of those, depending on exactly what configuration you bought, to have things like the first-party video controller or printer interface. And so you would buy this PC with five slots, but it came with two or three already used from the factory. Okay. So not, uh, not, not as expandable, you know, the box had five slots. Well, it's really maybe two or three. And it meant that power users or people hooking this up to, you know, other equipment, it means that you ran out of space pretty quickly. And so on the XT, IBM did a couple of things. They moved the slots closer together. This did lead to some compatibility issues with thicker cards. Yeah, right. But it had a hard drive built in, so maybe you didn't need that thick hard card anymore. Okay, yeah. And they squeezed in an additional three slots. Now, two of them were like half length, so they couldn't accept full length cards. Kind of like on the the 2019 Mac Pro, that top yeah. card where, the, where Apple itself uses a slot for the, the USB ports. It's a half, yeah. you know, half length thing. But it gave people more flexibility and... Popular nothing, cards right? were, were updated to be in slimmer packaging if needed. Yeah, well, and there were some cards that just by their nature were pretty short. Like serial cards were never very long, right? And so that those probably could fit in those smaller mm-hmm. slots. Yeah, do some rearranging, you know? Okay. Well, that's the hardware front. Let's talk software real quick. The XT shipped with PC-DOS 2.0. Ooh, 2.0. Ooh. Obviously, it included support for the XT standard hard drive. You got to have support for that. Yeah. And it also increased the floppy disk capacity to 360 kilobytes. Cooking with gas now. now. I know, right? Now, now physically, the machine was very similar to the original PC. Um, IBM certainly got its money out of the chassis design that yeah. was done originally because they they were you know they used that for years, um, and it was also that same chassis design able to accommodate those additional slots, which is is nice. Um, in addition to that, they used a, a beefier power supply that they had room for, and uh, there was a myriad of disk drive combinations over the years. Um, and, and there would be several variations of the XT over the years, but there's really there's one that's definitely worth talking about, and that is the XT370. This is a weird machine. <laughs> okay, do tell. <laughs> so the XT370, it could run full PC DOS, so you could do your right. normal DOS stuff. Okay. But it could also act as a terminal to an IBM mainframe you may have in your company. Oh. And... It could run old system 370 instructions locally. And so say that you were a company, you had a a system 370, which we spoke about those, you know, on the first episode or second episode of the season. You could basically keep those programs alive by buying an XT370. And you could kind of move between these different compatibility modes. Super smart, like so smart. That is smart. Very strange, though. 
Next, we've got the IBM 3270. All these numbers kind of just blend together in your head. They, they do. They don't. Do they have rhyme or reason? I can't seem to find any. Yeah, I don't know. But, it's it's but hard to anyway. tell. <laughs> yeah. So like the XT370 before, that's the one Stephen just talked about. Uh, this sh- this system shipped in the fall of 1983 and was also designed to run mainframe programs, but it was a very different machine. Um, because while the XT370 could run PC-DOS, um, that OS really took a backseat on the 3270. Instead, the 3270 booted into a control program as its operating system. And under control program, applications written for the uh, IBM 3270 terminal could run as well as one single DOS application at a time. Really weird. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> really weird. Um, and even then, compatibility with DOS programs proved fairly limited. Um, now, this was not a computer for the masses, right? It, it was really designed for the more traditional IBM customer who needed access to these legacy software titles. For sure. So this combined with the rather small size of the character display that the system could support meant that many of those that were interested in personal computers just overlooked this machine. But I guess for people that needed such a system, it was it was pretty well received, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a way into your old software that you wouldn't have otherwise. So that's a good thing. There you have it. Yeah. Not needing to run the big, massive mainframe anymore, I suppose. Right. And saving tons of money on hardware, right? That, that's the thing that gets me with, with these these machines. And there's some a little bit later as well that sort of pop up. But, you know, we talked about, well, you had a System 360 and you could buy something newer and it could emulate your 360, but you're still buying a room full of computer, and now it's been able to be miniaturized, something you could put on a desk and still have access to all that old stuff. And so, yeah, not something that I think, you know, enthusiasts would have been excited about. But yeah. again, if you're that that bank or that company or whatever, and you need this, then it, it fits the bill really nicely. Yeah, nice. All right, let's take a break and then we'll get to the uh, okay. the much maligned PC Junior. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by The IntraZone. It's always fun to find new podcasts to listen to. And if you're on the lookout for one, The IntraZone is a bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews hosted by the SharePoint team on how SharePoint, OneDrive, Teams, and more can all work for you and your business. You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field, so you can see how SharePoint and Microsoft 365 fit into your everyday work life and learn more about the flexibility of working with content, workflow, search, and more. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, focused topics of the week, guest perspectives from experts both inside and outside of Microsoft, upcoming events, conferences, workshops, and more. And the topics are really interesting. Everything from Microsoft lists, knowledge management, and search, all the way up through cloud administration. So whatever level you're working at, the IntraZone has you covered. I love hearing, especially from the experts who are inside Microsoft, we don't hear from people at these companies very often. In a program like SharePoint, a solution like all this Microsoft stuff, it's really important that people inside the company know how people outside the company actually are using it. And the IntraZone is a conduit for that. So go and listen to it now. Just search for the IntraZone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E 
or click the link in the show notes to check it out. Our thanks to the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of the show and Relay FM. So as we mentioned earlier, the, the IBM PC was really intended for the office employee. Mm-hmm. But what IBM is finding is that many of them that are sold through kind of more traditional retail channels are not going to small businesses, but to, frankly, homes. <laughs> 50 to 70% of them are estimated to be going to the home, which is a massive number. And the computer market in the kind of consumer space is super hot at this point in time. So to better serve it, IBM thinks, well, let's design a PC, Junior, that's a cheaper product, that could be better compatible for home systems and home uses. Because you've got the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. IBM had not been competitive in this game-dominated market, and they wanted to move in to kind of the more traditional gaming and slash kind of rudimentary programming uses that that a home computer would, would have. And so they released the PC Junior. It's got the same 8088 CPU and BIOS as the larger IBM PC, but it came with ROM cartridge slots instead of the hard disk, obviously. Uh, It came with better graphics and sound than the IBM PC, which is great because, you know, you look at something like the Commodore 64 and the graphics and sound controllers in those was was quite excellent for the time. And then you've also got necessary additions like joystick ports and... (laughs) An infrared, yeah, that's right. An infrared, just like your TV remote, wireless keyboard. That was really bad. Mm. <laughs> you. It was like this chiclet membrane, yeah. mushy terribleness. It looks, it looks awful too. I have I have used one. Um, it's bad. What's your WPM? Come on, like four on that keyboard. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> that bad. It's bad. Wow. Uh, okay, so there's two models of PC Junior. Model 004 and 067. Again, what do the numbers mean? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the low-end model had 64K of memory and featured the cartridge slots, like you mentioned. But uh, there were some issues with that and with the, the amount of memory. It was hard to get games down like to work with the PC Junior. Uh, yeah. Even though the Commodore very famously had 64K, the way they handled it was totally different. Uh, so the Model 67 came with 128K of memory. And a five and a quarter floppy disk drive, but it was more than twice the price. And so IBM kind of missed the mark on the hardware. And like you said, its graphics sounds were better. And in fact, the Tandy 1000 would end up being a PC Junior clone and like being way more successful. Mm-hmm. But IBM had only made it partially compatible with the PC itself. Yeah. I guess what happened is they kind of fell backwards into this market, people using the PC at home. And so they, they wanted to cater to those people and make it more family-friendly, and in doing so, damaged why it ended up in the home in the first place is that someone could run their work programs, you know, at night on their living room. Yeah, well, and... and Whoops. <laughs> right, and another thing that made it even more kind of of an issue that we didn't really mention, but because it came with, you know, game cartridge slots and better graphics and sound and joysticks, uh, all of that stuff, I mean, they had to be placed into expansion slots, and so there were no standard expansion slots available. Their bandwidth had already been taken up. And so that severely limits the kind of... Uh, target demographic i should say is this was really focused at kind of the home gamer but wasn't able to do 
much of what the IBM PC was well known for doing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, they just they missed the mark with this, mm-hmm. and it uh, it didn't go well. It was yeah. it it was announced in November of '83. The tech press was very excited, but when it shipped the next spring, it it didn't sell very well. And and for the reasons we outlined, uh, limited memory, people who were used to a full-blown PC couldn't go buy this because their programs may not work, and it was still too expensive. So they started slashing prices, but it was off on the wrong foot for sure. Uh, the keyboard, as Stephen mentioned, was by far the system's most pressing issue. Um, it was infrared-based, and so in theory, you, you might be wondering, well, why would you even do that? The, the idea was that it would allow the user to you know, sit back from the machine, heck, maybe even on a, a couch, <laughs> yeah. uh, like in the case where the machine is hooked up to a TV for gaming. But the Chiclet keyboard was just terrible to type on for any real length of time. I read a number of reports that talked about um, certain keystrokes not being sent, just just bad all around. But Look, the the hardware wasn't all bad news. Um, The PC Junior had a built-in display hardware controller, and it it ran at one of three possible resolutions. Um, It could do 160 by 200 uh, pixels at 16 colors. It could do 320 by 200 at 600 colors, even more impressive. Or it could do 640 by 200 at four colors. And at the time, many systems were using CGA graphics, but IBM kind of pushed past that standard CGA with the PC Junior. Um, CGA could only display four colors in its medium resolution mode and two colors in its high resolution mode. And so the IBM PC Junior increases these to 16 and four colors respectively. And that's that's a big jump. Um, but as you might have mentioned, uh, software compatibility was a little kind of all over the place. And this meant that not every title was designed with this in mind. <laughs> so initially, especially when this machine hit the market, it was kind of rough. But once the Tandy 1000 came along and kind of cloned this video behavior, uh, there were a lot more games that rolled out with support for the additional color depth. So IBM brought it, but they didn't really popularize it, I guess. And and Tandy benefited a lot more from this than, than IBM ever ever would. You can bet they did. But then there's like this other weird twist. Okay. Right. So they kind of miss the home market for all the reasons we talk about. Mm-hmm. But businesses start buying them as a cheaper alternative to the PC itself. Maybe you had oh, no. someone in the office who needed basic PC functionality, yeah. but didn't need that more specialized program that maybe other people in the office we're using. Okay. And so the compatibility maybe didn't matter as much or the memory limitations maybe didn't matter as much. And so IBM all of a sudden like finds itself selling a machine they cut down for the home, selling it into businesses. It's like everything they thought would happen didn't. Didn't. <laughs> well, it probably stole PC sales for, for their kind of you know, business market too. So it it hurt them in more ways than one. Yeah. So six months after this thing launches, it's pretty much determined to be a flop. It wasn't better at gaming than the Commodore. And not to mention, I mean, the Commodore had at this point a massive library of titles. Um, And then it wasn't really good in the office and it was still too expensive for the home market. I mean, you could go on and on and on about the issues. And frankly, 
you know, you were better just getting a PC clone that worked better for less money. So in March 1985, just a year after being put up for sale, the IBM PC Jr. was quietly taken off the market. People compared it to new Coke. So that's got a sting. <laughs> yeah, it's not not good. If the new Coke reference is lost on you, I'll put a link to my ungenious episode about it because it's, it's bad. Okay, so desktops are cool and whatever, Stephen, but do you know what's even better? Laptops. Laptops, baby. <laughs> Actually, you're kind of a desktop man, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you on a desktop right now. Yeah, so am I. It's an iMac. And uh, boy, this iMac has its fair share of problems, but that's not what this is about. We can talk about that later. <laughs> so the IBM Portable Personal Computer. It's a personal computer, but you can take it with you. Yeah, right. So it's like really small and thin and petite and everything, right? The IBM 5155, as it was known, released in February of 84. It was missing something that all laptops have. Mm. A battery. Oh. So it was portable as long as you had an extension cord. Yeah, and a power outlet. Mm-hmm. Okay. This sounds really good. Well, it was 1984. So we've got to give him a little, a little, a little grace. Yeah, but that's true. This is a full IBM PC. It's actually a full IBM PC XT, the same motherboard. Oh. Put into a carrying case with a built-in monitor, floppy drives, and keyboard. Uh, really a luggable is kind of what this is now called in hindsight. Yeah, I, I actually have a, a computer that's fairly similar from uh, Osborne. Oh, yeah. At, at around the same era. So, it, yeah, kind of same vibe. You got to plug it in. It's technically portable, but it's definitely not usable on the go. And, uh, well, as you can imagine, being the same motherboard that was in the XT, there are indeed eight expansion slots. Here's the problem, though. The floppy drives are are so deep into the chassis, and this in this chassis that's relatively svelte, there's less breathing room for the motherboard. And so... Uh, None of almost none of these slots can accept a full length card. The the slot one, which was where the video controller was housed, could fit the full length 13 inch inch card, but that was it. Um, and, and you know we kind of already talked about how there were two smaller slots on the XT that had less clearance, but on this machine there were actually four. So so slots uh, four through eight or maybe five through eight, they only accommodated. Uh, four to five inch cards, which is almost nothing. And so they largely stayed empty because A, you couldn't really fit anything in there. And then B, and this is probably a pretty important part, you are carrying this thing around. So you don't want to jam every conceivable card inside this machine because that makes it even heavier. Yeah. And that's where we get to the weight. How much did this thing weigh, Stephen? It's not, I don't have good news for you. Like five, six pounds? It, it starts at about 30 pounds. <laughs> And it starts at about $4,200. Yikes. We've got a, a, a PC that's not really a PCXT because it's kind of limited. Uh, it needs AC power. It weighs 30 pounds, and it's $4,000. So this was probably like a hit, right? Um, you might be wondering why even release this computer. And, uh, well, it was kind of viewed as IBM's response to the famous, and, and this is a machine that you probably have seen and heard of, the Compact Portable, which had released a year prior. Here's the problem. The Compact Portable, which was an IBM PC clone, cost $700 less 
than this uh, this specific 5155 from IBM. And it had the exact same 8088 CPU. It had the same clock speed. It was 100% IBM compatible, and it even weighed a few pounds less. I don't know why they thought this was going to work, but yeah, it didn't. It sold horribly, and you almost can't find these like for sale online anywhere. You can find compact portables like fairly easily, but this machine, mm-mm. Yeah, I looked. <laughs> I'm always curious, you know. <laughs> you needed to add it to the arsenal? Oh, uh, yeah, I need a, a heavy-duty shelf. Yeah, hey, when's the IBM PC collection starting? Come on. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Compact next time, but uh, this is really what this is really the machine that comes to mind when I think about IBM responding to what was happening in the clone market. Mm-hmm. Like they've uh, they have to work with, you know, kind of what's happening around them. Compaq yeah. and others really moved things forward, really kind of in a way that I don't know if, like, I don't know if, would IBM have gone here without Compaq moving first? Like, I, I, I don't know. So we'll get to that other second laptop model in a second that is more like a laptop, but chronologically, that's a little bit later. And it's important to kind of contextualize the changes that happened in the desktop to explain why maybe, spoiler alert, that laptop also didn't do super well. Yeah, yeah. So we're now up to the PCAT. Mm. A comes after X. Right, which comes after P. Very confusing. Oh, actually, that one does. Okay. Oh, right. so, how does so the alphabet they're, they're work? They're one for two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know there's something about this computer that you love, and you wrote a whole lot about it, so yeah. tell me okay. about the Model F. Okay, okay. All right, I got to credit the, the AT with something important. And that is that this machine shipped, as Steven said, with a keyboard. It's called the Model F. But what's important about this keyboard is that it's basically the same layout that we use on modern keyboards today. We have a couple additional function keys and stuff like that. But if you go look at this image, and we'll link it in the, in the show notes, that looks like a standard keyboard. There's familiar modifier keys, there's arrow keys, there's traditional placement of the cap scroll and num lock, there's a longer return key, a full-size stabilized shift key, which was the first. It looks like a normal keyboard because up until this point, there had not really been a standard. And so every keyboard was different. A lot of them were really horrible and made no sense ergonomically. I know I know we're biased because this is kind of the standard, so of course we think it's good. But trust me, I've, I've tried typing on some of these older keyboards and they are abysmal. Um, but not only is the layout special about this keyboard, it's special because it's a Model F. <laughs> and the Model F came in a lot of variants. It actually started shipping on the, uh, the PCXT. So it didn't introduce itself with the AT, but it's kind of where it picked up its popularity. Um, the most popular model was known as the F77. And again, looks pretty similar to a modern keyboard, but it's a buckling spring keyboard. So unlike, you know, modern keyboards, which are mostly membrane, like cheaper keyboards or mechanically actuated keyboards, which is what all your, you know, keyboard nerd friends build, um, buckling spring is, is way better. And words cannot describe how incredible this keyboard is. It's so loud but it feels so good and I can fly when I type on this thing. And it makes the much more famous Model M, everyone knows the IBM Model M and people are like, oh, it's the best keyboard all the time. Uh, no, uh, it feels like garbage compared to the Model F. Um, <laughs> there's, actually, there's actually this incredible project which has kind of spanned a number of years by a guy named Joe Strandberg who 
I don't know how to phrase this without, because I'm trying to compliment him, but the dude is maybe one of the most pedantic people I've ever met about specific things. And so he has more than I think any human could modified his new production model F's like the dumbest things where you're like, well, that doesn't matter, and but he cares. And so the result is, is you've got a keyboard that is by every measure as good as, if not maybe superior to the original IBM Model F. Um, it has a zinc metal case. This keyboard, Stephen, I, I bought one. I own it. It's it's fantastic. It own, it weighs eight pounds. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is crazy. And the thing just has a thud and it sounds incredible. Make no mistake, they're they're expensive. They start at about three hundred fifty dollars, and that's without keycaps. So by the time you're all you know said and done, shipping's paid for, you're looking at four hundred fifty to five hundred dollars, which is a ton of money for a keyboard. However, it's really not because these things last for like forty years. If you've ever looked into you know custom keyboards and keycaps and building stuff, yeah. there's nerds that'll spend two hundred dollars on a single escape key artisan keycap. I mean, five hundred dollars for a keyboard, not expensive. Just ask Mike. That's right. And so maybe here, I'll tell you what, Stephen. I'll record a little sample. Okay. And just insert it right here. Doesn't that sound great? Let's get back to the AT, though. Got to pull you off the the high keyboard horse. All right. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) So with this machine, they moved on from the 8086 chip to the 8286, which Hmm. sported 5, 6, and later 8 megahertz clock speed. So noticeably faster. Yeah. But more importantly, it also allowed for use of 16-bit expansion slots. So before, it was all 8-bit. For the right, the right. card interconnect, and now we're up to a 16-bit bus, which is uh, which is great. It really opens the door for more intensive and bandwidth-heavy applications. Right. Um, the good news is, obviously, it was compatible, uh, backwards compatible with the original 8-bit cards that had been used in prior systems. That's good. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> you don't want to start from scratch if you can mm-hmm. avoid it. Um, but as we'll kind of talk about in a minute, that came with a number of kind of downsides for this new bus. Um, here's the thing, though. There were a number of of issues that plagued this 8-bit bus particularly, uh, or excuse me, this this 16-bit bus particularly. Um, it had really poor grounding and power distribution issues, um, so not ideal. And then it also had undocumented interface standards between systems and manufacturers. And so you have these kind of weird cards that will only work on one type of machine or one brand of machine. And, you know, then in a certain other area. And then as mentioned previously, it has all of the issues that the prior A-boot bus had. So the clock speed initially was locked in step with the CPU. Uh, there was no conflict resolution. There was a very limited number of IO device addresses, so you couldn't get too crazy with your cards. And then, uh, yeah, the issues that we mentioned with grounding and all that stuff. So technologically really impressive, right? Um, a, a needed improvement, but great. <laughs> um, this was interestingly kind of all resolved but maybe not in the way you would expect ibm attempted to fix this at bus by introducing a replacement bus architecture called microchannel and you go and read uh, an article about microchannel versus kind of the traditional isa bus that 
you know, the, the AT bus was, and it sounds so much better. It's not even funny. I mean, it's like leaps and bounds, uh, improvement, but here's the problem. IBM wanted to license the microchannel standard, and they also wanted to maintain control of that standard. And as you can guess, in a market where IBM PC clones are really popular, that didn't really go over well, did it? Uh, nope. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was built to be open yeah. so, and expandable. Anybody could do everything. And the industry sort of smacked them around for this. Yeah. And so microchannel really never took off. And and luckily, the AT bus standard was improved over time, uh, largely in part due to major PC manufacturers like Dell that kind of worked with the open standard. But it, its initial launch was a little rough. And even though it ended up working out really well, you kind of have to think what would have happened had microchannel been uh, chosen as the successor. But it wasn't. So anyway, mm -hmm. it really shows that at this point, IBM had sort of lost control of the ecosystem. They really had. So uh, we just talked about the convertible, the luggable, mm -hmm. which shipped in the in the late 80s. Yeah. When the AT shipped in 84, uh, basically you would have, like you mentioned the Osborne, for instance, right? right? The Osborne has this famous thing where they talked up the second model and it killed the sales of the first one and the company went mm -hmm. under. <laughs> yeah. Now we have companies like Apple or Dell or whoever selling basically multiple generations of machines at a time. It's like, right. okay, this has this year's processor, this one has last year's processor, both are for sale, maybe the old one's a little bit cheaper. Mm -hmm. IBM would typically wait for competitors to release new products before doing its own new models, so that was kind of the pattern they followed. But hmm. with the AT, they basically came out swinging. It was between four and six grand, depending on how you configured it. But it was actually not that much more expensive than the old PCXT that was in comparison much slower. Yeah. In fact, a lot of rival companies were surprised by this and it, at Comdex 84, like the hub of all these announcements, basically yeah, no sure. one had competition for this new AT. So smashing success then, right? It it's it's it was a lot better than the XT, and even though yeah. the price was a little bit higher, I think people who were really dependent on this were probably excited. Yeah, I mean, it did ship with uh, MS DOS 3.0 as well, um, which could manage the kind of new five and a quarter inch floppy disk format, um, supported 1.2 meg disks, and then it also supported an increased hard drive capacity all the way up to 20 megabytes, which is actually pretty crazy. Um, and then the system allowed for more file sharing in general for uh, kind of use in small business and, and enterprise as well. And so, yeah, you know, big improvement, um, technically. It, it, I, I think the jump was probably bigger than the uh, PC to the XT, wouldn't you say? I think so. Yeah, especially yeah. with those higher clock speeds. I mean, if you were really running something that was processor intensive, the XT really didn't give you anything more than the PC did. You know, it was more expandable and more flexible, right? but right. the performance really wasn't that much better. And the AT was kind of the first time they really moved the ball, I think. I guess we talk about the PC convertible, but not before you mention one of the best parts about the AT. And NASA hard drives. Not really specifically about the hard drives, but who made them? A company called Computer Memories. <laughs> now, these hard drives were plagued with problems, and they ended up moving away from this vendor. Oh. 
Computer Memories is the best name for a hard drive company I've ever I've ever heard. That that is really really great. Okay. Remember that crappy convertible that we talked about earlier? Yes, the uh the portable luggable not so portable luggable. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, just a couple of years after IBM launched that, they released a true PC convertible in April of 1986. So this is post XT, uh, excuse me, post AT launch. Um, but it doesn't really matter because the specs of this and and the improvements sound way better than its predecessor. It was called the IBM 5140, and it weighed a lot less than a friggin' desktop computer, <laughs> just 13 pounds instead of 30. So that's a that's pretty good weight savings there. Yeah. And it also sported a battery, which, of course, made it more useful on the go. Now, these batteries were big, heavy lead-acid batteries, and they didn't power the computer for very long, um, but it did make it more portable. And if you look at this machine, it does look actually kind of like a laptop. A big one. Yeah. But it, it actually... Yeah, I think it's... I think it's kind of attractive. It, it is. It's. It reminds me a lot of the Macintosh Portable, if you're familiar with that. I have one uh, just in the other room. I hate you. I do not. Um, I've wanted one forever. Yeah, okay. Can we sidetrack really quickly? Just real fast. Please. Okay. Macintosh Portable. That machine, if memory serves, won't actually run unless the, the battery inside the machine is functioning, correct? That's correct. I think there's some mods you can do to bypass it, but out of the box, the battery has to be working. So does yours work or no? So the battery I got with it was reconditioned a few years ago, oh, but okay. I just unboxed it like last week and haven't been brave enough to try it yet. <laughs> oh, try it, Stephen. Try fire, it. Fire, fire extinguisher. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Sorry. Back to the machine. Let's talk specs. Why don't you tell us, uh, you know, what processor can we expect? And Yeah. Uh, well, it came with a PowerPC G4. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> it uses uh, a chip we haven't come across yet in our timeline, mm. the Intel 80C88. So it's clocked at 4.77 megahertz, but it's designed to be lower power. That also means less heat. Mm. And if you look at this thing volume-wise, it's by far the smallest machine we've come across so far. It's shipped with... So it's an Intel Atom. It's, a, it's the first netbook, is what we're saying. <laughs> Yeah, right. It shipped with 256k of RAM, uh, and you could upgrade it to 512k. So they've they've moved past that 6428 business that sort of plagued yeah. the earlier portable. Right. And instead of a heavy yet tiny CRT like your Osborne has or like the portable had, this mm -hmm. uses an 80 by 24 character LCD. Uh, Apple had oh. one of these for the Apple 2C that was mm -hmm. optional. They also sold a CRT or you could use it with whatever you wanted, but yeah. uh, a very small uh, LCD, but the LCD had a cool trick. So it could, even though the screen was black and white, it could yeah. accept and emulate color and monochrome graphics. Oh, that's kind of cool. It didn't have a backlight at first, which was a big problem. They had a couple of revisions of these and eventually they added a backlight, but this is, uh, it's a big jump from the portable. If you could be side by side, it's really hard to imagine that only a few years, only a couple of years really are between them. It's, it's actually insane. The machine also offered, um, two 720 K 3.5 inch floppy drives, which is interesting because this is actually IBM's first computer period that offers three and a half inch floppies as opposed to the larger, heavier five and a quarter product uh, predecessor. So, you know, 
a number of, of fairly interesting changes on this machine. And like we mentioned earlier, it actually does look like a laptop. Um, it even supported an external monitor interface, um, which is pretty cool. It also had modem support, printer support, etc. cetera. Um, it was basically, kind of, we'll talk about that in a second, a fully featured computer. It just didn't have an internal hard disk. Um, it even, and this is really neat in my opinion, it even supported a suspend mode. So when you were using it, you could push the power button quickly and then you could you know, close the, the lid up and that would hold the machine state um, as in so much as there was battery power available uh, up until the time that you reopened it so that it would just resume. So, you know, it's like a modern laptop, basically. You didn't have to reboot the machine every time you wanted to use it, which is pretty awesome. So despite all this good stuff, right, lots of firsts for IBM, mm-hmm. The machine had difficulty in the marketplace. It was two grand to start with, so a lot cheaper than the previous attempt. Yeah. But there were other portable compact machines on the market that had more built-in features. Yeah, I mean it sounds it sounds really good relative to its predecessor, right? But we haven't talked about the competition on the market at the same time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Next yeah. week some of this will get filled in and it's like, oh, we're a little behind again. Um, mm-hmm. somewhat hilariously to us in our modern time, many of the ports like parallel serial NVIDIA ports, uh, required dongles cause they weren't full size. <laughs> <laughs> so dongle town alive and well in, uh, 1986. Yeah. And this was actually seen as a pretty big downside at the time because some of the competing products, they were like, Hey, we can fit a full size standard port. We gotta love dongle town. It, it can't ever escape. Okay, so now we get to the last computer, and I would love for you to tell me about this, Stephen. It's the IBM PC XT286. Yeah, so this is built around Intel's 8286 processor, like the PC AT line. Right. It was released a couple years later in 86, and basically IBM wanted it to be like a lower-end machine. So you would have the AT which had the 286, but was clocked mm-hmm. a little bit faster and had faster memory, which is really what crippled the XT286. So right. you have the AT, and then you have the XT286 as the lower-end model. Okay. While it ran at 6 megahertz, the memory had this, this issue with, basically the memory wasn't as responsive as it was in the AT, and so the machine was not as fast in practice as it could have been otherwise. Hmm. For an entry-level machine, like it came with 600, 640K of memory, 1.2 megabyte disk drive, a 20 megabyte hard drive. So it was fairly well equipped. Yeah. But at this point, the AT had been around for a while. And I really think that the market knew that this, what this was. It's like, oh, you just sort of like put a parts bin computer together. Mm-hmm. And it was on the market for a year. Mm. before they canceled it. The AT was just a lot more successful. So there you have it. I mean, I guess we've got, frankly, the kind of three staples. It seems like each of the kind of major models that they introduced, the the PC, the XT, and the AT, were the ones that kind of succeeded in the end, even if their price point was higher than kind of subsequent vision uh, revisions that made it to market and, and everything like that. That leaves all of the clones, I guess, right? So you want to get started? All 4,000 of them. <laughs> Uh, I think I'm, I'm springing this idea on you as I say it, but I thought about okay. this last night. Let's hear it. Maybe we'll come up with a list and we'll draft some uh, PC clones. I like that. Let's do that. Okay. So so we'll be back in a couple of weeks doing that. Battle of the clones. Uh, until then, if you want to read 
about some of these uh, PCs, we have some links over in the show notes at relay.fm slash flashback slash 24. And uh, we'd love for you to go check those out. Go look, just go look at the PC convertible. I have a link in the show notes. There's one at the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good looking. I really want one. Out of all these machines, that's the one I really want. It does look good. The the display, I mean, for people that haven't looked at the image yet, first of all, go look at it. But you look at something like the Macintosh Portable, and that's got a much uh, kind of more traditional square display. This display, like what's the aspect ratio on this baby? It was 80 by 24, I think. So So 40 by 12, what, 20 by 6, uh, 10 by... Ten by three. It's very wide. <laughs> Ten by three. <laughs> you were just doing division in your head. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this display is one long boy. Very mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. It's so cool looking. Okay. Quinn, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at uh, Snazzy Q on all of the socials, except for TikTok. We don't do that. And uh, <laughs> you can find me on YouTube at... I'm not bitter. You can find me on YouTube at Snazzy Q. Oh, wait, no. I blew up my own plug. YouTube.com slash snazzy. That's it. Just search <laughs> snazzy labs. You'll find, me. You'll find me. You'll find him. Just search tall Quinn on YouTube and you'll find That's him. That's right. You will. You actually probably will. Steven, where can people read your uh, writings? On the internet. But before I say that, there's an IBM PC convertible mm. on eBay for $500. <gasps> it's in Salt Lake City. No, it's not. You could just go get it. IBM PC convertible. Listen to this link. Where? Just uh, right there. Okay. I got. Oh, here we go. My writing is at 512pixels.net, and I host the other shows here on Relay FM, including Mac Power Users and Connected. Go check those out. And until our next episode, Quinn, say goodbye. Steven, it has a case. I know. You should get the it. The display works. Oh, 500? That's a lot. That's too much. That's too much. Maybe I can borrow it. <laughs> yeah. Let's need it for a video. Free shipping. I can just go pick it up. Shipping to Memphis, uh, $85. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, I love the blue eject buttons on those floppy drives. They are so cool. It's very cool. All right, goodbye. <laughs> Bye, y'all.